This episode features secret FBI recordings that contain profanity and other offensive language. We're including them in their unedited form to convey the full impact of this hateful rhetoric. In the hours that follow the Pulse shooting, Patrick Stein calls the Kansas Security Force militia group together for a Zello call. The dust has barely settled. The news cycle is still racing nonstop with coverage of the horror in Orlando. On the call, the KSF group is in agreement. This is bad, really bad. Here's Dan. And everybody's pissed off, and, you know, I, I was too, you know. It was actually a gay nightclub, and I was actually, I was really surprised that uh, I thought, knowing Patrick, he'd say, oh, well, they're gay, so they don't count. No, he wasn't. He was like, no, they're, they're Americans. They killed, they killed all these guys. It's time for action. On the call, no one is angrier than Patrick Stein. It's as though a switch has been flipped. He can barely contain himself. In fact, he is unequivocal. This attack isn't just horrifying. This is an act of war. We have domestic enemies, which Muslims are. Whether you believe it or not or whether you believe it or not, they are domestic enemies that live amongst us every fucking day. That day, a raging Patrick didn't have a plan. He just wanted to start cleaning house, he said, kicking some doors. His anger is sharp, but there's nowhere for it to go. The call ends up circling familiar topics and winding down as usual. It's another 36 hours before Dan hears from him again. But Patrick has used the time to shape his feelings into the spark of an idea. Patrick calls early in the morning of the 14th of June, two days after the shooting. And he just said, we're having a meeting. We're to see who's, you know, who's going to be with me. We're doing something. Patrick was gathering a select group of people from KSF who might be willing to ramp things up a notch. And Dan was invited. He told Dan he wanted to meet at the property of another KSF member, Brody Benson. Brody had sprawling land just west of Wichita, three hours away. It was still early, and Dan was half asleep. In fact, as soon as he woke up, he felt queasy. Something was off today, and the last person he wanted to be talking to was Patrick Stein. But Patrick sounded hyperactive. It was time to start counting heads, Patrick was saying. Find out who was with him and who wasn't. After Dan hung up the phone... He had to think for a moment. Speaking to Patrick when he was in one of those moods was exhausting at the best of times. But this felt different. He was already scared of Patrick. There was no denying that. He was so unpredictable. And he was now calling Dan all the time, often while Patrick was working on his family farm. He had hours to kill while he drove tractors round the vast fields. So he'd call Dan and the other KSF members on a rotation. And in the endless prairie, Patrick had plenty of space and time to fill with his violent monologues. On top of that, he had to shout to be heard above the noise of the thrashing tractor, a deafening experience for whoever was unlucky enough to pick up the call.
Patrick's rants were one thing, but from what Dan had just heard, he was trying to rally some troops, and Dan didn't know where it would lead. He called one of his FBI handlers, Agent Amy Kuhn. He told her that Patrick had invited him to a meeting that same day, out in a field somewhere, far away. Amy told him to come into the office as quickly as possible. We wanted to give him a recording device so that he would have a recording device and we would know exactly what people said. Patrick Stein had said, you know, we need to do something. I'm sick of sitting around and waiting for something to happen. We need to take action. So obviously that made us concerned. The agents sprang into action, but Dan wasn't at all sure about the recording device. Actually, Dan wasn't sure about any of it. I did not feel good. I had a bad feeling, my you know, intuition about this. It's like, man, I don't want to go. He'd spent the previous day in the hot sun doing yard work. He felt shaky, his head in a fog. It wasn't the frame of mind to try something new. I never said I don't want to go before, but I was, I was feeling terrible. I was dehydrated. I was, um, hadn't eaten. It wasn't Dan's first time recording a meeting. He'd been recording Zello calls from the safety of his home. But this would be the first time in person, and certainly the first with such high stakes. The field that Patrick selected was in the middle of nowhere, and he'd chosen the location for a reason. Whatever he was going to say, he didn't want to be overheard. I don't know where I'm going. What if, what if uh, they found out that I was working with the FBI? You know, they have, it's a small community. What if somebody tipped them off? Are they going to take me out there? Are they going to kill me? Are they going to tug me out in the middle of the field, bury me, and never, nobody ever see me again? Dan wasn't wrong to worry. If something did happen, Dan would be outnumbered and outgunned. Wearing a wire like they do in movies seemed almost safe by comparison. In Dan's case, there would be no gray van parked outside, stuffed with agents, ready to pounce at a moment's notice. In fact, there'd be no way agents could be nearby, given the remote location and the wide open prairie. They would be far too conspicuous. It all added up to a cold truth. Dan was on his own. The closest agents probably would have been 15 or 20 minutes away, which, I mean, from Dan's perspective, if somebody truly wanted to harm him, we're not going to be able to get there in time to do anything to save him. Dan dug his heels in. He said he wanted to call Patrick and tell him he was sick, that he couldn't meet him. But the agents pressed Dan again. It wasn't that they wanted to risk Dan's life, but whatever was going to be said in that field, they needed to hear it. In spite of his instincts screaming that he needed rest, Dan understood the importance of the day. He agreed to go to the meeting. Patrick wanted Dan to meet him in the parking lot of a McDonald's at a mall just north of Dodge City so they could travel together. But after a morning of racing around to get ready, Dan was running late. By the time Dan joins him in the truck, Patrick is annoyed and Dan is nervous. Oh, 
sorry about that, man. They're making time for this. The meeting ain't starting without me. Yep, all right. <laughs> well, I guess we'll be on back. All right, good deal. As you might be able to tell, the sound quality from Dan's recorder isn't perfect. But crucially, it works. Patrick gets going. They're already late. He's just as annoyed as he was on the phone earlier. And as they head out, he's already riffing on his favorite topics to Dan. Government cover-ups. Somalis on the rampage. The usual. The AC in Patrick's truck doesn't work. So Dan rolls down the window. Takes in the hot summer breeze as they speed down the highway. Um, I'm sick and tired of seeing our own fucking people get slaughtered by our own fucking government. Dan is dehydrated and realizes too late that he doesn't have anything to drink. I'm asking him to stop at a convenience store so I can get some water. He's like, there ain't nothing out here, man. They're out in the middle of nowhere. Nothing but sky and fields. The highways turn into country roads then a bumpy dirt track. After a couple of hours, they pull up near an old house. Dan spots two other KSF people waiting nearby, including their host, Brody Benson. The four of them walk over to a shed where there are some stools to sit on. It was actually getting dark at that point. Um, I remember asking somebody if they had some water or something, and uh, you know, the, the guy down the place, he, I mean, he was, he, was, he, he was a nice guy. He, he had a little, just a little bit of water. He gave it to me. And, you know, he was like, you, you're all right, man. You're not feeling very good. And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, man. You know. The talk is casual. They're waiting for their KSF commander, Curtis Allen, to join them. And there's kind of an unspoken good manners decision not to dive into the heavy stuff until he gets there. Instead, they discuss their personal lives, fishing, hunting, divorces, anything but the topic that's hanging over their heads. Brody talks about his land. I'm lucky because uh, right here we got 2,000 acres. It's all tied together with one road, which is that road right there you guys went through and cut through it. So I've got a lot of little land. Whatever I Brody's a prepper, someone who has a backup plan in case civilization crumbles. It's about being self-sufficient and able to defend yourself in a lawless society. Brody's land is his security. If something bad happened tomorrow, Brody's got it all planned out. So that gives me a great bug uh-huh. location. Well, Plus, that's I got all this water around I mean, here. It's just about everywhere. You know, if we all get gained into one area, well, when, when shit hits the fan, where's it going to hit? Exactly. Wherever we started. Wherever we started. That's Patrick. Unable to wait any longer, he gets into the real reason they're all sitting around at Brody's place. Well, is that what you're doing? That's what I'm doing. I ain't necessarily starting anything, but I want to start cleaning house. Mm -hmm. I'm fucking tired of it, dude. They're bringing these motherfuckers in by the plane load. Well, what's the solution, though? Because I don't see a small number be able to stop that. Well, that's why we need more numbers. These plane loads of people Patrick's talking about, the shadowy mass of immigrants he fears, bring Patrick neatly to the purpose of the meeting, recruiting for his mission. 
I had envisioned I'm kicking fucking doors in with a goddamn Mark II. And then you're going to get just maybe as many as that dude last week. Just as many as the dude last week. She's talking about Omar Mateen in the Pulse nightclub massacre. Nobody's even going to know I'm there other than them motherfuckers. Do a lot of recall. Oh, there's this, this oh, isn't something I'm doing tomorrow. This, this is something that I wanted to grab a core group who are, no, not following what I'm saying. The fucking cockroaches in this country have got to go. Period. They are the fucking problem in this country right now. They are the threat that we have in this country right now. The cockroaches. Patrick's dehumanizing term for Muslims. Despite the fact that Omar Mateen was American, born and raised, it's the newly arrived followers of Islam that seem to bother him more. In fact, it's clear to him that something needs to be done about their Muslim neighbors here in Kansas before it's too late. That includes the cluster of apartment buildings in Garden City where the Somali immigrants live. Patrick muses about what he would do if he only had a rocket-powered grenade launcher on hand. I mean, I wouldn't be against if I could get a hold of some RPGs. I'll run some RPGs right through. I'll blow every goddamn building up right there. Mm-hmm. Boom, I'm out of there. You've got to be realistic, though, because I can't get any of those. And you can't either. <laughs> well, there's ways. While the others are chatting away, Dan finds himself swaying on a stool, and a panic rises inside him. And then I was like, did they drug me? Did I get drugged? You know, I knew I was sick before, but they're like, man, you're right. He's still so dehydrated, and now he's losing it. In the tape, you can hear him shuffling around, trying not to collapse. We can't do it with five of us. That's the problem. When you and I sit there and we think and we try to get a hold of somebody that's as serious about it as we are. And I get up and I start something, trying to walk and and I pass out. And later on the recording device, you can hear me hitting, hitting a fence, uh, a chain link fence that he, that he had there. He's flat on his back in a remote field, surrounded by militia members. He has an FBI recording device on him and no control over what happens next. All the fears he'd had earlier come rushing back. If they find the device, Dan fears, they might do something to him, interrogate him, kill him. As he fades in and out of consciousness, utterly helpless, there's nothing he can do except pray he isn't discovered. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. As the meeting unfolded, Agent Amy Kuhn was waiting anxiously by the phone. She was a professional, 
She knew the risks and the rules, but she also cared about Dan. It was hard for the FBI agents not to become personally attached after spending so much time with him. And as the minutes turned into hours, Amy began to get worried. So I had tried to call Dan and I hadn't got any answer. And I had tried to text him and I hadn't got any answer. And it was getting to the point where we were becoming concerned that if we needed to do something or what we were going to do. And Dan called me and he said he was in the hospital. After Dan passed out, Brody Benson had called for an ambulance, which brought Dan to a local medical center about 20 miles from the field. It might as well have been 100 miles away. Even in his haze of semi-consciousness, Dan felt intense relief knowing that the ambulance ride would transport him somewhere safe. He was severely dehydrated, but once the EMTs rigged him up to an IV, he felt much more like his usual self. Miraculously, no one had touched his clothes or looked in his pockets. His secret was safe. Dan wasn't the only person concerned about his recording device being discovered. Amy and Robin came as quickly as they could, telling the hospital staff that they were Dan's family. They're freaking out, and they come, you know, like within an hour, you know, they're, they're up there, and, I, and I, I tell them, I still got everything. And they're like, you still got everything, everything. I'm like, yep. Oh, good. Dan ending up in the hospital was not part of anyone's plan. The stakes were higher than ever before. And given what Dan had heard at the field meeting, it was clear that his recordings were vital. There was no stopping now. Dan was just going to have to keep going, no matter where it ended up. But at the same time, Dan's family was beginning to see the strain being put on him. His two children were teenagers at the time, Alyssa and Brandon, and they knew everything that was going on. Dan and his kids had a pretty honest relationship. There had been some rough times in the past for the Day family, when their home was repossessed, when Dan lost his job, when his wife Sherilyn was diagnosed with a depression that prevented her from working. Getting through it together was the only way the Day kids knew how. Um, we've always been a really tight-knit family. Um, all the things that we went through with uh, being in, in poverty and everything, it's made us really close and really trusting. We were able to live in one room, like all four of us, together for at least a couple years. And we don't really have a lot that we have to keep from each other or... They know about yeah, we just kind of are able to talk about serious stuff. It's never been hidden from us. My dad has always been sure to like include us and let us know what's going on so that we're not like sideswiped by it. Brandon was 16 when Dan first became an informant. Alyssa was 14. Even though they were young, Dan didn't want to keep something this important from them. And the way things began, it hadn't seemed like something that should worry them. Yeah, for the first part, it was definitely more joking and, like, comparing it to the Flat Earth Society <laughs> yeah. and making those kind of jokes until, like, the shift in groups. And then it was more 
like, okay, it might be a security thing. We have to actually talk about like what'll happen if something goes down and if my dad had to get like fake arrested or like if one of the guys decided to come after us. As things got more intense with Dan's informant work, there was just one condition they had to abide by. They couldn't tell anyone about it. I mean, even if you told someone who would believe that your dad is undercover for the FBI and recording a crazy militia. So it's not that hard to keep it a secret when even if you do let it slip, no one in their right mind would ever believe you. In fact, Brandon actually did end up sharing the secret with his girlfriend at the time. If I disappear one day, he told her, it's because I've gone into witness protection. As Dan was lying in the hospital bed after the meeting in the field, his first call was to the FBI. The second was to his family. Melissa answered the phone. That was one of those moments that I realized, like, something could happen to him. Like, if they decided to just not call an ambulance because they didn't want to get, like, caught out in a random field in the middle of the night, then he wouldn't have made it home. That's when I started getting worried about him. Dan acted his part well, but as the weeks progressed, he worried constantly about being discovered. He got a dog, a pit bull named Sarge, that he thought would sound the alarm if someone barged through the door of the family home. He started making plans for what they should do if he was caught. There were guns hidden around the house, and he ran through an escape plan with his wife and kids, just in case the worst should occur. Quitting wasn't an option. Patrick had made it perfectly clear that he was now hell-bent on sourcing a core group of dedicated militia members willing to meet him on his level, ready to step over the line if he asked. So Dan's mask had to stay firmly in place, no matter what Patrick and the others said. My ass is on the fucking line here, and everybody in this room's ass is on the fucking line, whether that's prison or fucking death, straight up. Or just going crazy because you killed somebody, and that's driving you fucking crazy with your conscience. There are people that that happens to. So you got to be good with all three of those scenarios. This is Patrick in the home of some other KSF members in mid-July. It's just over a month since Dan collapsed in the field. Dan is recording, and a KSF couple, Trish and Corey Birch, are listening to Patrick's recruiting speech. He's in full force, given the hard sell. Okay, knowing what you know, you know what we're fucking here for. My question is, are you going to be an active participant? Is that the game plan, or what are you going to be doing? Are you going to tell somebody if we tell you to or ask you to? He said you're a pretty good shot, so. <laughs> I need to know that, though. Patrick's high-pressure pitch isn't working. Unlike Patrick, the other militia members he had targeted for these meetings just aren't interested in starting a war. That's not the job they signed up for when they joined the militia. I'm, I'm not, you know, we're not just going to... 
for no reason. I mean, unless they are literally have weapons in their hand and are ready to start taking people out, then yeah, I'm there. But basically, I mean, I don't know. I guess the way we are, we're going to be on the defensive. You mean what? We're going to be on the defensive. You know, we're going to be keeping our eyes out. We're going to be keeping intel and get things figured out. But we're not that type of people. We believe in protecting ourselves. Now, Beyond their principles, it's also about practicalities. They have lives. They have jobs. They have kids. They can't or don't want to throw that away, no matter how passionately Patrick argues his case. We can get our numbers up. When the shit hits the fan, it's every, it's fucking game on. I can give a fuck less what anybody else thinks. All I know is you're either for us or against us. If you're against us, I'll put a boat in your fucking head. If you're with us and for us, come on and join the crowd. Patrick's choice. You're either for us or against us. It's turning out to be an easy one for the other KSF members. In the end, the only people who seem to be on board are Curtis Allen, Gavin Wright, and Dan. It was as though there were three people living inside Dan's head. There was Dan Day, Garden City Man, who was close to his kids. There was Minuteman, a codenamed FBI operative who believed patriotism was worth risking his life for. And then there was D-Day, a hardcore militia member who spied on Somalis, who plotted murder and revenge. It was D-Day that Dan didn't like. For months now, Dan's family had heard the long Zello calls with the militia group that ran late into the night. It was a bizarre experience. The calls were on speakerphone so that Dan could record them, which meant that the voices of Patrick, Curtis, and Gavin boomed around the family home. They also heard Dan playing his role live, managing to avoid suspicion by saying just the right things to fit in, which meant joining in with the talk of killing and torturing his Somali neighbors, his fellow garden citizens. You know, it was part of my persona, and... I was in it, and so I had to go the whole way, you know. I had to, you know, I'm not proud of it. I had to talk like them. I had to act like them. I had to agree with them. You know, not necessarily agree to everything, but my worst fear was that they, I would say something and they would leave me out. So I had to, I had to keep up my persona. Night after night, Dan would have to play all of his roles at the same time. He would start out as Dan Day, getting settled in his bedroom for the long meeting ahead. Then, as Minuteman, he would get his FBI recorder ready. And finally, he would join the Zello calls as D-Day. One of the hardest parts was playing all three roles in balance. The FBI were clear on that. Don't get so carried away being D-Day that you forget your role as Minuteman. The FBI needed Dan to blend in and be their eyes and ears, but he couldn't be the one to come up with the plot. If he did, the militia members could claim entrapment and the FBI's case would fall apart. It is okay to go with other people's thoughts, but we don't want you to be the person that's coming up with the ideas or 
to be the one to plan anything. If somebody has an idea, even if it's a terrible, like if somebody says something bad, even if it's horrible and it's not what you would normally believe, we want you to go along with it because we want you to be a part of whatever might happen. And the only way you're going to get to that point is if they trust you and think that they, you have the same beliefs that they do. Gaining their trust was difficult enough, but keeping their trust, that seemed even harder. Later in July, he attended a KSF recruitment event with Patrick, Curtis, and Curtis's girlfriend, Lula. They had a table at a county fair, and people could come up and chat to them about what it meant to be in a militia, find out about meetings and how to join. It was a good opportunity for Patrick to keep scouting for new blood. This time, Dan didn't have his recording device on him. It was malfunctioning, so he'd left it behind at the FBI offices earlier that day. As they left at the end of the day, Patrick asked Curtis and Dan to meet him in the parking lot. Suddenly, Curtis turned on Dan and began patting him down, like he was some kind of TSA officer at the airport. Dan was rattled. Something weird was going on. But Dan tried to turn his focus back to Patrick, who was talking about scheduling their next meeting with just the four core members of their group. Then Patrick's phone rang, and he walked away to take the call. And then things got even weirder. Now alone, Curtis pulled out his gun, a gun that he wasn't legally allowed to possess owing to his domestic violence conviction, and he held it two inches from Dan's forehead. Curtis Allen put a gun to my, gun to my head and uh, told me, anybody finds out about this, I'm going to put a bullet in your head. And my instinct, I, it, it just pissed me off. It wasn't persona. I, I was like, pull my gun halfway out, and I was like, what the fuck are you? If I ever hear anything about that, I'm going to put a bullet in your head, buddy. It was a risky move, but Dan wasn't acting. Curtis was threatening his life, and Dan had had enough. There was a tense moment, and then Patrick returned from his phone call. Patrick was there, and he was, like, laughing about it. Yeah, all right, you know. And, and Curtis, you know, I thought he was going to be pissed about it, too, you know, me threatening him the same way. But uh, he, he was, I think he, I think he was doing it to, to see if I was real, if I would, you know, back out or cry or, you know, whatever. Curtis laughed and put his gun away. He tried to pass it off as a joke, but he seemed to give Dan a little more trust after the incident than he had before. Dan had passed the test for now. We don't know. Is ISIS coming into our country? With all of the people that are pouring in, we have no idea who they are. We have absolutely no idea. You know the harm they want to inflict. You look at what's taking place in our country. San Bernardino and Orlando. It's early August 2016. The election is a few short weeks away. Trump's speeches over several days have been feeding the swirling Islamophobic sentiment of the moment. 
stoking a narrative about Muslims, immigrants, and terrorism. We want to see what's going on, folks. And we're letting people come in from terrorist nations that shouldn't be allowed because you can't vet them. There's no way of vetting them. You have no idea who they are. This could be the great Trojan horse of all time. Four days after Trump's speech, Patrick, Curtis, Gavin, and Dan are meeting at Gavin's business office in Sublette, a 40-minute drive south from Garden City. You know how to drop pins everywhere? I've only really been doing it a week, maybe. I mean, I'm just figuring it out. Behind your shit, would you just yeah. drop pins every fucking location where we know them bastards are at? The group is gathered around a giant 60-inch monitor on the wall. At the moment, the screen shows Garden City. Then the view zooms closer on the north side of town. Closer and closer still, it shows an apartment complex on West Mary Street, number 312. It's where many of the Somali immigrants live, where they've converted one apartment into a community mosque. Yeah, that's, uh, they've dropped a pin right on top of it. Those are empty right now. Wait for the next shipment. Potential cockroaches. <laughs> Patrick has now named their gang of four the Crusaders 2.0, in reference to the Christian Crusades a thousand years ago, characterizing their actions as something noble, something like an army, it gives Patrick the license to push the envelope as far as he dares. Easier, quicker, faster to do, like if we had access to a fucking RPG. Or I could throw a fucking RPG right into a goddamn mosque and blow the fucking whole side of that motherfucker off. From a distance. Middle of the fucking night. And be gone. And be gone. As a home for the Crusaders 2.0, the G&G Mobile Homes Office is perfect. For starters, it's remote. The office was actually a trailer perched on its own lot on the outskirts of town. Secondly, and more importantly, it was available all the time and was a controlled environment. If they wanted to shut out the world, Gavin would simply lock the door. They're narrowing targets for an attack but they can't settle on the right one. They know who the problem is. It's Muslims. And not only the ones under the pin in the map of Garden City, but also everywhere else in America. The Crusaders need to send a message to the government, scare people at the highest level to stop Muslim immigrants entering the country. And then, on a local level, there are other targets they consider. Businesses that hire Somalis and landlords. If these motherfuckers didn't have a place to stay or a fucking job, they wouldn't be. That's right. They couldn't get here if it wasn't for our government. We're paying for them to get here. That's right. But once they're here, if, you know, they got a job and a place to live, that's it. Or if people won't give them a place to live because they're afraid for their life, like he said, you put the fear of God in some people. Even atheists start believing in God when it comes to death. I guarantee you that. They might tell you they don't. That's This meeting is a level up from the nightly Zello calls. They're talking now about real people, real targets. They realize they need some kind of manifesto 
a document to share the why, a one-two punch where they'll combine words and actions. That's what we got to do. And we need to send it and drop it off at every fucking radio station and every newspaper, at least in Kansas, to where it gets out. Then. You are going to put this out. we got to figure out what we got to do. That way, all, and then we'll put right there in it. Somehow put it into the wording where when somebody reads it, at the end of it, they'll be like, this is what we need to be doing. The meeting ends with a plan. More like a plan to make a plan. Each member will go home and think of a target to bring to the next meeting. As Dan begins the 40-minute drive back to Garden, he can relax again. But there's a thought ping-ponging around his head making him nervous. He knows the FBI doesn't want him to plan ideas, just go along with other people's. So which target location should he bring to the next meeting? How can he suggest a target without jeopardizing the investigation? But there was something that troubled him far more. What if he chose the target and then the FBI couldn't stop the attack in time? As usual, he contacted his FBI handlers, Amy and Robin, to describe how he was feeling, and they were able to offer some comfort. We actually saw it as an opportunity to give some suggestions, and we didn't know ultimately if they would pick the targets that Dan provided, but we saw it as an opportunity to, for addresses that would make it easier for our investigation purposes. The FBI office was in Garden City, so it made sense to choose somewhere close by. They gave Dan two suggestions. Number one, the Somali Mall, an African shop run by a Somali immigrant. Or two, the apartment complex on West Mary Street. And as far as Dan's nightmare scenario, that he would be responsible for choosing the location of a mass killing, the agents reassured him. By suggesting one of these locations, he would be giving them a better chance to stop it happening. He was actually saving lives, and he wouldn't put their investigation in danger because it wasn't like these ideas were new. He was citing targets they'd all been talking about already. He'd just be leaning in a certain direction. When the Crusaders next meet a week later, there's something of a homework presentation. Everyone's supposed to share their ideas for targets. Uncharacteristically, Dan pipes up first. What's here? The uh, nice and loud. <laughs> and the Savoy Mall there. No cameras back there. Dan offers the Somali Mall first. It's an isolated building with limited chance of hurting innocent bystanders. But then it's Patrick's turn, and he has a very different idea. Brilliant idea for a target. What was it? Yeah. Chicago, Illinois. There is, I told you, a long ways away. <laughs> well, I thought you meant Kansas City. Patrick heard about an event in Chicago where a convention hall would be packed with Muslims. His plan involved pretending to be a maintenance man, getting access to the convention center, and rigging a car up with explosives. The group isn't convinced. Far from it. Chicago? That type of plan would take months, if not longer. It was totally impractical. And as they talk it over, there's a clear difference of sensibilities in the group. Patrick's ambitions have no limit. 
plotting 10,000 deaths in one go doesn't seem untenable to him. For the others, they'd prefer something more manageable and local, something that allowed them to keep their lives intact, even while they destroyed others. You know, I mean, one of the easier we know you want to fucking die in the process. We don't. I ain't saying I want to die now. I will. I want to be alive to go do it again. See, I want to be here to change shit. Dan's idea is too small. Patrick's too big. But there's a Goldilocks moment in the group, an idea that has agreement on all sides. The apartment complex on West Mary Street in Garden City. It's been on their minds for weeks, and they've already surveilled it. As he discussed with the agents, Dan gently leans in the right direction, and their target is set. Now they begin to think about the practicalities of their attack. If they did it on a Friday, they reason, the day most Muslims gather to pray together at the mosque, they could set an explosive device and kill the most number of people. They talk about filling a car with explosives and parking it outside or filling dumpsters that they would wheel under cover of darkness into four positions, one at each corner of the building, for maximum effect. Dan's role would be recon work. He'd gather intel about the building and the schedule of the prayers. Curtis says he'll keep working on the manifesto. He and Gavin also want to start testing explosive materials. Curtis is the first to remind them nothing happens unless they get going on that front. The group draws up a shopping list of bomb-making equipment, chemistry kits for testing the explosives, beakers, mortar and pestle, that type of thing. Curtis brings up the subject that was on everyone's mind. This stuff wasn't cheap, and this group isn't exactly wealthy. Patrick set him straight. Look, you know what I look at? It? You got credit it's time to start maxing those motherfuckers out and fuck the payments. You know what? Because it ain't going to matter in a few months, boys. To Patrick, the attack will be a watershed moment. He believes the manifesto will speak to the millions of Americans that he's convinced feel as aggrieved as he does and that they'll rise up in support of their cause. Credit card debt isn't something they need to worry about anymore, not in the face of the greater good he's imagining. And there's a date... November 9th, the day after the presidential election. If they did it too early, it may scare people toward voting for Hillary Clinton. So it had to be timed just right. That left precious few weeks to bring their plan to fruition. On the surface, D-Day was all in, listening attentively to Curtis map out a timeline for their bomb testing. Under his facade, Dan Day was scared. This is real, he reminded himself. This is happening. The countdown had begun. Once the group got their hands on bomb-making materials, it was only a matter of time before they could put them to use. It was now a race to the finish line. For Dan, for the FBI, for the Crusaders. Though the Somali community didn't know it yet, A circle with a bullseye in the center had been drawn around their homes, their mosque, and their families. And it was growing tighter by the day. It appeared as though we were moving towards an end game where, obviously, if we fail, it's 
bad. I can't say exactly when, but uh, just between you and me and the fence mm-hmm. post, you'll probably be seeing some news okay. coming out of western Kansas here All right. in the near future. All right. By early October, we think that we're in a pretty good spot, and then everything sort of unravels. Truth and Lies, The Informant, is a production of ABC Audio and contains reporting and interviews conducted by George Stephanopoulos Productions for the documentary, The Informant, Fear and Faith in the Heartland, streaming now on Hulu. This podcast was written and produced by Carrie Ann Thomas, Madeline Wood, Marwa Milwaukee, and Cameron Chetavian. Additional production by Iru Ekpenobi, Audrey Mostak and Nania McLean. Our supervising producers were Susie Liu and Sasha Aslanian. Our story consultants were Chris Donovan and Eamon McNiff of George Stephanopoulos Productions. Music by Evan Viola. Scoring and mixing by Evan Viola and Rob Galane. Special thanks to George Stephanopoulos, Jennifer Joseph, Joe Park, Mike Levine, Monica De La Rosa, Brenda Salinas-Baker, Josh Cohan, and Liz Alessi.